What a blessing it is to be a people of the book. That is to be a people who study, who listen to, and who learn from God's revealed message. Quite frequently as we read through the New Testament, our Lord and His apostles refer back to these prophets of old and refer to the message that they delivered and how it impacts those of us who are a part of the New Testament. This morning we're going to conclude our study of the book of Joel. And if you will, I want to encourage you to take your Bibles. I reviewed the lesson this morning as I came here early. And I realize that I have a whole lot of scripture in this lesson. And for that reason, I'm not going to be able to read everything that we'll be able to put on screen. We'll just probably note some things out of some of those passages. But I hope that you are the kind of student of God's Word that learns from it and is able to take it and go with that and learn even more. As we begin, Joel is often referred to as the prophet of Pentecost. The reason for that is because in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 16 and following, Peter bases his sermon upon what was stated by Joel in Joel 2, chapters 28, or verse, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And I will tell you that there is some great continuity as you look at the Old Testament prophecies and the fulfillment that we find in the New Testament. Joel prophesied of events in the near future for his listeners and his readers, and then he prophesied of some distant events. He spoke about, for instance, as we studied last week, of the locust invasion that took place and the invasion of an army which brought about the punishment of his people. And yet all of that was to forward the people's idea to realize they had violated God's law and they would stand in judgment for them. Of course, as we will notice, Joel 2.28 will talk about the afterward. He challenged the people to have a genuine repentance. That is not to just tear their garments, but he said, tear your hearts. Make sure that it makes a change in you as a person, a real genuine repentance. And then Joel refers to five times the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord will come and that day will distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous. So here's what we're going to do as we study Joel chapter 2 verse 28 through chapter 3 and verse 21. I will tell you the majority of our lesson, the first three points, will be taken from verses 28 through 32, and the final one will be taken from chapter 3. And we're going to talk about the season of time in which Joel is prophesying. We're going to talk about the signs which will be a part of that message. Then we'll talk about the salvation that is promised through that, particularly in verse 32. And then finally, the selection. As we get to chapter 3 and verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision as people must make a decision. Let's begin as we look at verses 28 through 31. Now I again encourage you to open your Bibles. We're going to look at it. 
And Joel writes, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And on your men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. And I'll show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. You know, when I use the word season, I'm talking about a period of time. Just like in the book of Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 1, to everything there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. We're talking about a time in this passage. Joel says it will come to pass afterward. Joel uses the word afterward. And Peter uses the term last days. Why would they describe it differently is because from Joel's perspective Joel is trying to describe what would take place in the present the invasions of the locusts and the armies and what would take place afterward their distant future however Peter is an inspired man just like Joel and so he can say and it shall come to pass in the last days talking about a period of time Now, I will tell you that I I think it's important as we go through to distinguish what Joel is teaching from what some modern-day false teachers are saying. There are people who are premillennialists. That is, they believe Jesus will come to this earth and reign for a thousand years. And in doing so, they have a great confusion with what the Bible calls the last days, plural, from the last days. Day. The last days refers to the period of time from the cross of Christ until the end of time. The last day refers to the day of judgment. And so Peter is looking and Joel is looking at the last days, that season. Well, what are the last days according to Scripture? Notice with me the way Peter phrases it. In Acts 2 and verse 16. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days. Notice the events that were taking place when Peter spoke. He said this, what you're seeing, what you're observing, the speaking in tongues, that great sermon that's going to preach, be preached in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. This is what Joel was talking about. And so the last days have to begin, must begin, with the time of Peter on the day of Pentecost. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the writer says, God, who at various times and in various ways in time past spoken to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days... Spoken unto us by his Son. You see, old time, who did God speak to? The fathers. How did he speak to them? 
by the prophets, the means, various times, various ways. Now the last days. Jesus, God's Son. You know, it's just like on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. You have Peter, James, and John going up with the Lord onto a high mountain. There appeared to them Elijah and Moses. And there was a voice that came from heaven when Peter wanted to build three booths, three tabernacles, that said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. That's the way God speaks. These are the last days. But you know, when you go to Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2 and Micah chapter 4 and verse 1, Both of them say exactly the same thing. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days or last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it or into it. It's talking about the establishment of the church. So the church age, the time of Christ are the last days. One more thought to go along with that. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, he said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they break, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, The covenant I will make with Israel, with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's looking forward to the coming of the new covenant or new testament, if you will. So the last days of which Joel speaks is that of the new covenant. There will not be another age after this. That's why we call them the last days. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24, Paul puts it like this. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And he will put an end to all rule and authority and power. There will be no more kingdoms. There will be no more nations. After our Lord returns, there will not be a millennial kingdom. The Lord will then give it to the Father, the church, the kingdom. And that will be the end of the ages. But now notice with me again, verses 28 through 31, as we observe the signs that go along with this. He says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh in verse 28. Verse 29, the latter part of that verse, and I will pour out my spirit in those days. He talks about prophecy, visions, dreaming of dreams, signs in the heavens and on the earth. Pouring out of God's spirit is something which Jesus said would happen. As you begin reading the book of Acts and Luke is recording the events, he records in chapter 1 and verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, 
you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Notice he says, it's not going to be long. You're going to receive the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father is the baptism of the Spirit. You drop down to verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus told them, go to Jerusalem, wait, the Spirit's coming. And when does the Spirit come? Acts chapter 2. The Spirit descends upon them. And they begin to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance or the ability to speak. In Acts 2 verse 33. Therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. The pouring out of the Spirit. In Acts 2, the miraculous gifts was prophesied by the prophet Joel. In Mark 16, verses 17 through 20, after the Lord gave the great commission and told them to the ones that were believing and being baptized would be saved, He said, and these signs shall follow those that believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. You see, the Lord said these things are going to happen. You get to the latter part of verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. The miraculous gifts were for the proof that this was a message from God. Now when I look at what Joel prophesied, and what Peter said, this is what he was speaking about, he said that God would pour out His Spirit on the young men and on the young women. And then he talked about there would be old men dreaming dreams and young men seeing visions. And then he said, I will pour out my spirit on your men servants and maid servants. You see, there's no distinction between gender. The spirit will be given to both men and women. There was no distinction with regards to age. It would be old and young. And there was no distinction with regard to class. It would be those who would be owners and those who would be slaves. I know a lot of people have difficulty with the fact that women would be given the gift of prophecy. But when I go to Acts 21 in verses 8 and 9, it talks about Philip, the evangelist, verse 9. He had four virgin daughters who prophesied. You can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and chapter 14 by that matter and look and see that there were those women who prayed and prophesied. But I will tell you according to 1 Corinthians 14, beginning with verse 26, that those were gifts that were only exercised among women, not among a mixed assembly. There would also be signs in the sky, that is the heavens, and on the earth. I could spend a lot of time taking you through some of the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel. 
as well as we will observe in Matthew, there are sometimes use of these dramatic events. For instance, you can see in Isaiah 13, verse 10, the stars in the heaven, the constellation will not give their light. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not cause its light to shine. Or Ezekiel 32, 7, I will put out your light. I will cover the heavens, make the stars dark. And I will cover the sun with a cloud. The moon will not give her light. You see, God sometimes used signs in the heavens to let people know that he was active. We do know, according to Matthew 27, verse 45, that while our Lord hang upon the cross, that there was darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. That darkness was when God would not allow the sun to shine because of the despicable acts of man. But these things were for a purpose. Signs are just exactly like that. They reveal, they mark, they show. They're showing that there's a new system that's about to take place. Joel was saying, this comes before the great and the awesome day of the Lord. Hebrews 2 and verse 4 says, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. God was putting His stamp on that. And Jesus Himself had demonstrated these signs and wonders according to Acts 2, verse 22. And Peter says, which you yourselves know, you've seen them. Which brings me to the third part, and one the part which I think now, for us, begins to have some real application. I want you to look with me now at verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. As the Lord has said among the remnant, whom the Lord calls, there will be salvation. Particularly, he said, those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you see what Joel is doing. Joel's tying these miraculous events to the announcing of a message of salvation. What Peter does in Acts 2 is say, what you're seeing is what Joel spoke about But Peter's thrust comes from verse 32. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Which brings to everybody's mind, what does that mean? How is it that one calls on the name of the Lord? That's a significant question. That's a live question today. Because I've got friends... And I know you have friends that believe that all you have to do is say, God save me. But I do know from what Jesus said that a verbal statement is not enough. Matthew 7 verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Luke 6 and verse 46, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? 
It's very easy for a person to say, Lord, I want to invite you into my life. I want you to be my Savior. And think that that's all there is. And Jesus says, that's not all there is. I'm going to put it on the screen, but you need to have marked in your Bible at Joel 2.28 and Acts chapter 2, Romans 10, beginning with verse 13, because that's where we learn what it means to call on the name of the Lord. There's going to be another scripture that will go with that, but this needs to be right here in your Bible. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Guess where he got that? Joel. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Did you see very plainly? He said, you cannot call upon God unless you have believed But you can't believe unless you first heard. And there can't be any hearing unless there's been someone sent to tell you a message. And then I think the kicker is found in verse 16 when he says they've not all obeyed the gospel. Calling on the name of the Lord is obeying the gospel. How I call on Him is I have to first believe. And then obviously with that are the other items of the gospel which involve repentance, confession, and baptism. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The other passage you ought to have written down in the margin of your Bible is Acts 22 and verse 16. Paul is recounting his conversion and he's saying... Here's what Ananias said when he came to me. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord. You see, as Joel looks forward to whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, The calling on the name of the Lord involves faith, it involves repentance, it involves confession, and it involves being baptized, as we see here. Now, if you will, let's move very briefly, very quickly, to chapter 3. I will tell you that I could have spent a lot of time in chapter 3, in fact, almost made lesson number 3 out of this, but I felt like this really goes together that a selection has to be made. I want you to look with me as we look at verses 12 and 14. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge the surrounding nations. Verse 14. 
multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decisions. I want you to visualize, to imagine, if you will, in your mind. Here's a gathering of all nations. And they're coming to this valley, the valley of Jehoshaphat. And he will make it clear, according to verse 14, this valley is a valley of decision. It'd be very easy for us to think our decision when in reality it is God's decision. Because it's not a decision of whether or not, as some people say, I'm going to make a decision for Christ. This is God's decision of who's guilty and who's innocent. This is really the day of the Lord that's coming. And a verdict's going to be rendered. And what follows in the context are some are going to be brought to utter desolation while others are going to be forgiven. He's going to use some figurative language, but for just a moment, bear with me as I look at verses 19 through 21. Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, because of the violence done against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in their land, but Judah shall abide forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will acquit them of their guilt of bloodshed, whom I had not acquitted. For the Lord dwells in Zion. Now, this is prophetic language. That means there's some symbolism in it. But all those nations that have failed to do what God has told them to do, God has said there's desolation for them. But for those people of God who have come to God in faith and in response of obedience, genuine repentance, he said, I'm going to acquit them. That is, you're not guilty. Is that not exactly what Peter said? They came to Peter and the rest of the apostles and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and let everyone be baptized for the remission of your sins. The acquittal that takes place. Notice Acts 2, 37 and 38, and then verses 40 and 41. I've already mentioned 37 38, 40 and 41. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. What a powerful message that was. We are living in the last days. People have always had to make a decision whom they will serve because God will make a decision one day of those who have served him and who have not. I want to end with three verses of Scripture, Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey? Were the sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? 
But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. This morning, I want to urge those of you who are not Christians... You may be a younger person who's been thinking about obeying the gospel. You may be an older person who's been putting it off for years and years and years. When we sing the invitation song, come forward and say, I want to be forgiven of my sins. I want to be a New Testament Christian. I want to call on the name of the Lord. If you're a child of God and you've been walking out of step with Him, you know... God will acquit you, forgive you if you come back to Him in penitence, genuine repentance. Would you come while we stand and sing?